All right, welcome to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. This is a Tuesday episode, so with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how you doing? Hi, Bradley. Uh, how was your weekend? Um, I kind of already can't remember how my weekend was. That's what happens on Monday mornings, isn't it? It was fine. It fine. Was fine. Yeah. I, I did some swimming. I went and saw a movie. You know, what'd you see? Um, Indiana Jones. Did you like it? No. Okay. I mean, I didn't hate it, and it's fine. It's what you expect. But the only people I heard like my parents really loved it. So I think if you're 75 and older, it's yeah, you're the demographic for that movie. <laughs> I'm the demographic. Me and and I, I saw a couple of movies too. So I'll do my recommendations at the end. I'll, okay, I'll we'll talk about that. Things. Okay. So a uh, bunch of stuff to talk about today. One is. I want to quickly touch on the migrant crisis. Uh, Bob Grinley and I wrote a column that ran in the Daily News yesterday about it. I want to t- talk about that a little bit. Um, I want to talk about AI regulation. The uh, FTC is investigating ChatGPT. So I'd like to talk about that. I'd like to talk about um, the New York City Housing Authority and kind of some ideas that I have around how to deal with public housing. Um, would like to talk a little bit about the writers and actors strike in Hollywood and then recommendations. That's great. So let's talk, let's go right into the, the migrants column. This is obviously uh, an issue we've talked about a lot on this, um, on the show, but tell me what, what the column is about and, and, and tell me about the, some of the reactions yeah, to it. Yeah. So, I mean, the, there's basically four problems as, as I, if we can see it. So one is, um, you have people who are living in incredibly difficult and humane situations in Honduras, El Salvador, Venezuela, Haiti, whatever it is, and they want to leave to get asylum and have safety because everybody wants that. So that's number one. Number two, you know, we have this massive migrant crisis here in the U.S., and the resources needed to deal with it, just to house people and feed them and everything else is overwhelming. It has overwhelmed New York City's budget, and I'm sure this is the same thing in cities and states all over the country. So um, local government cannot handle the responsibility of being responsible for tens of thousands of migrants, right? So that's number two. Number three, the economy right now has a desperate need for low-skilled workers. Um, There are just tons and tons of positions that are open because they are things that Americans don't want to do, uh, whether it's you know, landscaping or delivery food or dishwashing or whatever it is. Um, and all of those businesses desperately need workers. And then fourth, from a macro standpoint, you know, our country is just getting older and older. The baby boomers are the biggest generation I think at the time we'd ever had. Um, they're aging out. And not only will they need Social Security and Medicaid and people to take care of them, but if we don't get younger workers into the tax base to provide new funds to cover all of that, we're not going to be able to take care of them. And so we need the economy uh, to get bigger and younger, and that's going to take a massive influx of new workers, which can only come through immigration. So you put all that together, and we're, what we conclude is New York City, we think, should just say, you know what, fuck it. Uh, the administration is not handling this well at all. Uh, we are just getting stuck with more and more responsibility. There were articles in the papers today about building tent cities at Aqueduct Racetrack and a few other places for migrants. And it seems to me that the people who crossed the border illegally, um, they didn't come here with the hope of, I'll get into the U.S. and then I'll somehow get free government housing and food and everything else for an indeterminate amount of time. That's not what they're looking for or what they want. What they wanted is, um, just like when my family immigrated here, 
we'll get to the U.S., we will find work because it is a place with a lot more opportunity than we have in our home country, and we will build a life, right? And it isn't easy by any means, but it's preferable to them to what they're dealing with, you know, in Venezuela or whatever it is. And they see the path for their children. So what, you know, my grandparents and my dad, you know, sacrificed, enabled me to, to now be able to have certain things that are, that are really great. And so that's what they're looking for. And so our solution is let them work, right? Just create a New York City work permit and say, you know what? If the feds won't act on this, we will. You migrants are allowed and eligible to get a job in New York City. New York City already has a huge job services division within, I think, the Department of either Small Business Services or, or one of those. Um, so we already really know what the the vacancies are. Um, help staff them, help fill them. You're doing a huge favor for the local economy and for local businesses. Um, and then just say to the migrants, like, look, we will do everything we can to protect you. Um, they may worry about ICE or something like coming in, but they're already here illegally, so it's not like they have any leg to stand on. And as far as the businesses go, I, I could understand why Microsoft or some giant company wouldn't want to take the risk of a New York City work permit being sufficiently valid. But, you know, you're a local restaurant. Like, think about us, right? So at Tusk Ventures, would I hire uh, an illegal migrant? No, because it is a SEC-regulated fund, and I wouldn't take that kind of risk with my LPs, you know, money and the trust that they've placed in me. But at PET Network, my bookstore, um, if we had a need, say the cafe, whatever it was, uh, for workers, and the city of New York said to me, "Look, we've created this work permit that we believe is sufficient," that would be enough for me, and I would take the risk, and I would hire someone. And so it just seems to me that rather than sitting here and just endlessly complaining about the migrant crisis and just trying to scramble to deal with it, which is mainly what you see both the mayor and the governor doing, it, this problem, it, it's, it's not going to solve itself, and it's not just going to get better on its own. And so it just gets worse and worse. You got to do something different. And I am sure all of the bureaucrats and government lawyers are telling you all the reasons why you can't do it and it's illegal and the White House will be mad and you get in trouble for this and they'll yell at you for that. Who the fuck cares? I was thinking about back to my time when I was deputy governor in Illinois and consistently, this won't shock you, um, I did things that we didn't necessarily have the legal authority to do. Right. And, and I understood, look, I'm an attorney. I, I understood what I was doing when I was doing them. But for example, um, in downstate Illinois, so that's kind of the southern rural part of the state, um, you had pharmacists refusing to dispense contraception to women at Walgreens or CVS or whatever it was. We issued an executive order saying you have to do this. It was challenged in court. Our authority was upheld. We won. Um, then we became the first state in the country to import prescription drugs from Europe and Canada because they're so much cheaper than the same exact drugs here in the U.S. The FDA vigorously opposed us. They threatened to put us in jail. Um, they seized all the stuff at the border, and eventually we lost because we weren't able to control the border, right? Um, we passed legislation. I'm amazed you didn't manage to control the border, Bradley. I really, you know, it's, we weren't, if we were Wisconsin, if we were like in one state, I think maybe I could have tried to figure it out. Um, I t I'll tell you, both Blagojevich and I were not against the idea of like a 24-hour stint in jail over this because it felt like it would actually... Uh, well, he ended up serving issue. a lot more than 24 hours. Yeah, it turns hours. out he did eight years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've done none, thank God. Uh, not come wood. Um, and okay, uh, Bradley, let me let me yeah. ask, let me just jump in with with sure, two, two, two questions. So, um, what? So th this checks all the boxes that you that, that that you delineated. But how do you how does this get sort of tip over the line 
into something that Adams and Hochul would actually you consider know, look, doing. Look, I talked to people yesterday from both the mayor's office and the governor's office about it. Um, and you know, these are people who are very intelligent, very well-meaning, certainly want to solve the problem. They both don't want the responsibility of housing the migrants. They recognize the, the, the need that the economy has for it. And a lot of the conversation was me saying to both of them, just fucking do it, you know? And if it gets overturned... And, and, and what do they say when you say, hey, you can't, you're local person, you just get, fucking do it? You can't. You get in trouble. The lawyers say it's a problem. We'll be fined. We'll be sued. You know, every fucking excuse in the book. And look, it, it, one of the points that I made to one of the people was... You only get so many chances to work at really high levels of government and impact public policy, right? And if you're going to spend that time saying, okay, well, I tried to do good things, but, you know, this person said I couldn't and that. And you just, if, you, if your only existence is to make up excuses for why you can't do things, go find an easier, better paying job. There's no fucking reason to be in government and you're wasting the opportunity that someone else could be making more of. And so when there is a clear moral and logical, and by the way, in New York City, political solution to a problem like this, just act on it. A corollary that we've talked about in this podcast before are the weed shops, right? Just fucking padlock them. Stop making up excuses as to why this lawyer or this bureaucrat said you can't do it and just do it, right? And so- Local Law 11, the scaffolding, right? Just, you know, lead the effort to repeal the fucking law. Like, it just seems to me that there are so many problems that we have that, you know, are easy to sort of make up excuses for why you can't deal with them or you deal with them ineffectively. And with a little bit of balls and a little bit of creativity, you can really go a lot further. And I'd like to see that happen. Okay, one more question on this and we'll move on. But um this obviously runs straight into the sort of Trump ideology, right? So the the, the Trump is against things mm-hmm. like this. He wants the For wall, sure. and that it, that that position is obviously resonating so, really and, and significantly look, out there. In the, that's why the Biden administration is not going to just turn everybody loose. So I'm not arguing that they should do that or that this would work in a swing state, right? But in New York City, where we are the global home of immigration, like no one's going to be politically punished. And so, yeah, I don't think that the Biden administration is going to bless it, but are they going to actively start prosecuting it? I don't think that they will, because I don't think that's what they actually believe. And there's no political gain for them to do so here. So uh, you're not an economist, but you did go to the University I, of Chicago. I play one on TV. You play one on TV. I play one on this podcast, I mean, the, the standard sort of economic sort of argument here is that this depresses working class wages. If you add a lot of a, a lot of workers to the to the, the market, it brings down wages. Th- that, across that, the well, first of all, these are minimum wage jobs. So we're, or it's, 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 we have a minimum wage, and these are mainly minimum wage jobs. So it's not like... There's this sort of pure free market where when you add in 100,000 more workers, then definitionally, you know, the average wage declines by 7%. Um, There's a floor, right? So that's number one. Number two, if we didn't have tens of thousands of openings for jobs, that'd be one thing, right? If it's a, if it's a tight labor market and, you know, or or, the other way around, sorry, if, if unemployment were high and people were desperately looking for jobs and they weren't available, that would be one thing. But we have these huge, huge holes in our workforce that someone needs to fill, and the people here are not filling them. Um, should we talk about Lena Khan? And yeah. The, so so let's, let's, let's uh, go over the news. Last week, the FTC under Lena Khan um, is uh, mounting an inquiry into AI. 
Um, I guess this is what Sam Altman was asking for when he, when he... I don't think he was actually... No. <laughs> so I think Sam Altman was not saying, please investigate me for illegal act, act no. practices. Although, so wait, I, I want to say this one thing is... So Sam Altman's position, though, is, um, he goes before Congress, he says, please regulate us, which I think is a Tusk strategies kind of boilerplate, right? Almost, yeah, I mean... At this there, point? It's interesting. So it's a two-sided coin. So if, if you're Sam Altman, on one hand... Being proactive about saying we want to be regulated has a ton of advantages. At the very worst, it shows that you are not against working with government and trying to make sure that you're protecting consumers. It lets you sort of feel like you're on the right side of the issue. And the best is when you can shape the regulations to actually fuck over your competitors and build a regulatory moat that you're the only AI company then that could be successful in whatever the specific area is. The downside is, um, you know, when government gets involved, government gets involved. And if they believe that you are breaking the law in various ways, just because Sam Waltman in their mind is a good guy, and I have no reason to not think that he's a good guy, but um, if if they believe that oh, ChatGPT or OpenAI are violating various consumer protection laws, um, they're going to enforce them. But the, the reason I want to talk about this is so. The FTC announced an investigation into ChatGPT. They sent like a 20-page letter with questions about deceptive uh, business practices, consumer practices, data protection, a bunch of different areas. Um, and then you saw this immediate sort of howls of outrage from chambers of commerce, industry groups, conservative think tanks, all of this stuff. And look, I am certainly not someone that believes in heavily regulating anything and everything, but it seems to me that AI is this brand new concept that has both the potential to do incredible good and incredible harm. And the lesson we learned from Internet 2.0 is we fail to regulate it, and it has done incredible harm, right? So, you know, the listeners are sick of hearing me talking about Section 230 and, you know, better antitrust and, and a privacy framework, but all of these rules that the EU did, we don't have here in the US, and the internet spiraled out of control, became incredibly toxic, and now this is giant cesspool that we all live in every single day that wasn't something we had to deal with 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So AI potentially puts sort of the upside and downside of internet 2.0 to shame, right? It's, it's exponentially both more promising and more dangerous, and rather than what government did the first time around, which is just fucking ignore it and let... Google and Meta and Apple and Amazon and Microsoft's lobbyists sort of squash any type of change or reform that could help people. I'm glad that we have an active FTC that is saying, okay, you know, AI exists. Our job is to protect consumers. Our job is to protect economic competition. And when we see ChatGPT potentially violating existing laws on the books, we're going to enforce it. So Lena Khan, as you know, was both on this podcast and came here to P&T Knitwear um, and did an event where we talked about AI regulation. And her point, which I thought was very good, was, look, Congress, or just generally speaking, there really are no laws around AI specifically. But ChatGPT is a business that is subject to all kinds of regular consumer protection laws, right? So, for example, like the, there's a guy who's suing them because uh, he's a radio host in Georgia and Chat PTT said he was uh, accused of embezzling funds from a foundation. And, like, he had nothing to do with that at all. Or there's another guy who was a lawyer who, like, it was a chaperone on a class trip to Alaska, according to Chat PTT, and inappropriately touched a student. There was no trip. This never existed, right? So, like, 
Do we so, know where those things come from? Yeah, well, so what they think, again, do we know? No, but that then this is where both AI is, is interesting and so fucking scary, is it seems like it has a tendency to hallucinate and sometimes make up answers to questions if it doesn't know them. Um, and what it will do is sort of scan vast amounts of material in, in a nanosecond and draw conclusions that, so in this case, you know, there was a foundation that was... It, potentially embezzled from, but this guy had nothing to do with it, but they were able to link, well, I don't know, maybe this foundation at some point, this guy knew someone that was involved, whatever it was, they, ChatGPT drew some link in its neural network to then reach this conclusion, which was totally defamatory and false, right? And so it is pretty fucking scary to me that, that this yeah. technology, and by the way, they don't quite seem to know why it does that. And so um, I'm all for the FTC actively regulating it. I think we should be fucking thanking them for doing so. so and so, like, but there's someone's some, at least on the job. There's been a little blowback just in the sense, you know, from, from I guess, predictable parties, the Wall Street Journal, um, and am among them, about the sort of adversarial approach that Lena Khan seems to be taking. Do, do you? I, yeah, I don't totally disagree with that. So I, I think. I think, um, and without revealing private conversations, I, I've, I've talked to them about this too. I, you know, I think the FTC and the White House's messaging and DOJ's messaging on this stuff could be a lot better. And in the sense of when you look at the individual things that they have pursued, most of the time, from what I can tell, it's very most both within their jurisdictional bounds and it's their job to do so. Um, what the broader message comes out is, we hate tech, we hate business, you know, we're just going to go after everybody we can. And I, I don't think that's what they actually mean. You know, the Biden administration is fairly moderate on, on economics, but, but I think that they neither message it to be able to explain. So, for example, the reason why I've been an active supporter of the FTC's antitrust efforts against big tech is not because I hate Amazon or Apple or anything else. I, I use all of their products like everyone else does. It's because as an early stage tech investor, there's no way that I could invest in potential competitors to any of those companies because they have so much monopolistic power that they can squash anyone immediately um, or buy them at well under market value. And as a result, there's no point in me investing in the first place. That harms innovation because, sure, right now, Apple is this incredible company doing amazing things. But you know what? So was Ford. So was Standard Oil. I mean, there's all these companies start history that were incredibly disruptive and innovative that over time, because this is human nature, get stagnant and bureaucratic and internally political and everything else. And the wheels slow down. And the only way to keep innovation going is to have constant challenges to them, either to force them to up their game or to disrupt and, and displace them, right? And so, but if you can't even get these companies off the ground because there's just no way they could ever compete, um, you're harming innovation. So, you know, I've been an active supporter of a lot of the FTC's agenda because I think that ultimately it will protect and advance innovation, I think they could message it a lot better. One quick uh, additional thing about AI. You, you sent me this article from The Atlantic about um, about sort of the potential uses of AI in political campaigns. Yeah, it was fun. What what, uh, what what do you see as a cool way for AI to, to help in campaigns? I mean, things. writing press releases doesn't sound that interesting No, me, I mean, I'd be curious. And look, this maybe let, let's switch the order a little bit and okay. go into the writers and actors strike. Oh, you want to go right into that? Only because it, it really oh, does, okay. which is... I'm really curious about the content that could be created through AI. I understand why the writers and the actors are scared of it, but at the same time, just as someone who sometimes we make 
content for the campaigns that we run for our clients or our portfolio companies. I'm really curious, right? Like why we, we use every other form of technology actively to try to make a bet, better content and product. You know, why wouldn't we use AI? And so, you know, right now the realm of, of political advertising is, you know, controlled by 10, 20 firms inside the Beltway that make 90% of the ads and they're generally, pro, you know, mediocre lame. products. Lame. Yeah, lame. And, and I think that, you know, the very least, I'm curious to see what AI can come up with. Maybe it is better. Maybe it is more inspiring. Maybe it is harder hitting. Maybe they figure out a way to make it more relevant to the viewer. Maybe they figure out a way to make it more targeted so that you're isn't not it, wasting as much money. Doesn't it seem likely that the almost the opposite happens, that like AI manages to do exactly what those like firms in Washington are doing? And then it's, it's just it's, cheaper to get rid of the firms? Well, no, but then 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 the onus goes on to the human side of like, well, how do you do something actually better, right? If the, if the machines can just make the sort of wallpaper version of what you know yeah. exists. Well, well okay, then, so let's say we are Chris Coffey, CEO of Touch Strategies, right? Chris has worked in, you know, with his team on an app. We should have Chris back on. We haven't had him in on yeah, for a while. Chris, Chris is great. Um, if they have to spend most of their time and energy on the blocking and tackling, then they theoretically have less time to think about doing things really differently and creatively. Now, in a perfect, what we try to do is, of course, do things differently creatively and do the blocking and tackling. But if you can reduce the, you know, when, when, when you have running water and you don't have to spend half the day walking to and from the well, you can do a lot of other things, right? And and so... The Bradley Tusk story. Once yeah. you guys got the well... That was it, everything Or the changed. running water. Once you didn't have to go back and forth to the well. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so it seems to me that whether it's political advertising or... Um, new content. Look, I, I get why the writers are worried about this. They're worried about being replaced. But the reality is, to your point, the truth is, you know who would get replaced? The hacks that do mediocre work, right? Right. right. Uh, because AI can effectively be mediocre too. Um, and the people who are truly creative and talented, the, there's still a need for them. Um, but now, look, I will say this about both the, the writers and the actor strike. And it was funny, Abby and I on Friday inadvertently literally ended up in the middle of the picket line because we had lunch at ABCV. Apparently, the ABC writer's office is right next door to it. We didn't know that, but the waitress told us. Um, so, so you had ABC writers is right next to ABC kitchen? Turns out, yeah. um, according to our waitress. It's weird. Um, but there was some reason why you had the protest there, and apparently there were some celebrities there. I didn't notice them if they were there and we were there. And they had taken... So there might be pictures of you marching They in, had taken a, over the in, block... And you literally couldn't get out of the restaurant without being with the marchers. So it wasn't very long, but from basically Park to Broadway on 19th Street, Abby and I ended up marching. I don't even know if I support these guys, but we ended up marching simply because you couldn't get the fuck off the street otherwise. Oh, wow. But anyway, look, I do think that ultimately this is how... This is a really good example of labor and management, and this is why we have unions, and this is how the process works, which seems to me... It's an arm's length transaction. Both sides have, you know, collective bargaining power one way or the other. And they both have their interests and they are negotiating for that. And sometimes the negotiation comes to a halt and to a strike in order to get ultimately get it done. And this is exactly what unions are for. And so, look, I, I, you know, I listened to David Simon was on um, People I Mostly Admire, which is Steve Levitt's podcast, which I really like. And I didn't find, I mean, Simon's a, a brilliant man, obviously. I would still think The Wire is maybe the greatest TV show ever made. But, you know, he, he attempted to spend the whole hour phrasing it in, in, in moral terms, that the studios were immoral and the writers were the heroes. 
And quite frankly, that's not true. They are two sets of rational actors, both seeking to maximize their economic gain and benefit. And the reason we have unions and bargaining is to create a process to do so. In fact, what was almost disappointing is what, what makes David Simon's work so great is that it's not black and white, right? Like what made The Wire incredible was that it was so gray that you had people who were good and bad simultaneously on every side, right? Whether it was the drug dealers or the cops or the politicians or the dock workers or the teachers or whatever it was. Um, and being that nuance is what made the show so so wonderful and so brilliant. And Simon seemed to miss all of that in his podcast where he was just stridently, and I get that he's a union guy and he's active and he's a leader, um, but I actually think he really did not do a, I, that audience is pretty sophisticated who's listening to, you know, a, a behavioral economics podcast. And I, I do not think he did himself any favors. Well, I agree with you about Simon. I mean, I've seen him speak too, and, and I'm a huge admirer of his work and, and I think he's the best of the best, but he himself can be very caustic and, and kind of one-dimensional in his... Yeah, in and talks. just came off very self-righteous, which just meant, at least for me, he kind of lost the listener. So um, I want to give you one little factoid, which yeah. maybe you know. You know, the last time the writers and the actors were on strike at the same time, you know, the head of the writers' union was? Ronald Reagan. Oh, sorry, screen actors. Union. Ronald Reagan. I, I, I right. read Stratagory this morning, too. Um, how great... <laughs> I read the same column. Oh, you, oh, man, you read it also? Yeah. <laughs> now, the, the, what, what I loved about that, though, is that so he's kind of responsible... Because they, they, they basically won the, the, the fight. It, it's and so they got fun, the right? Residuals and this, put in. this guy who ended up being sort of an enemy of organized labor was no, a great, turned out, was a great fucking union leader. Yeah. And, and you know, if they can get back to, you know, his level of, like, power and But he was, look, what Reagan doesn't get in some ways, I would say, the respect that he deserves in the sense that he was a Obama-Trump-level political talent right right genius uh, um genius right and in many ways was trump without 90 percent of trump's bad qualities right but but in terms of his ability to read a room and communicate it was really brilliant and by the way in many ways more effective than obama because he was better at now he was it was a kinder gentler time but he was better at working with the legislature and kind of you know the process of of lobbying people and persuading them and obama had very little patience for that so yeah no i was uh i was amused to see that too um bradley i'm impressed you're reading strategy at six o'clock I, I knew we were going to talk about it this morning that's why i read it. oh there's some nice beeping going on i love the beeping yeah i love it when that happens oh stop oh yeah Great. um so uh we're gonna do one of our hard pivots here yeah. to our last major topic of sure. the of the of the episode uh, New York City Housing Authority. So um, there's 330,000 people mm -hmm. who live in uh, what's NYCHA. referred to as NYCHA. Mm -hmm. um, they, uh, it's a subsidized housing, obviously, supported yep. by the federal government. Um, there's uh, an enormous bill coming due to renovate uh, pretty much the, the entire housing Latest estimate was what, $78 billion? $78 billion. Yeah. So you have some thoughts that's obviously way more than is ever going to be forthcoming from the federal government. We have this massive problem um, that is, I mean, it's been slow rolling for, you know, already decades at yeah. this point. Um, there seems well, to be... Well, the, the estimate was $40 billion like two years ago. No, and it was like $6 billion like 20 years ago. Right, like now it, it's 80 yeah. Um my, So the other thing that you didn't mention is, so our friend Jamie Rubin, who's both been on the podcast, we talk about on the podcast, I'm friends with him, you become friendly with him, he is the new chair of NYCHA. Uh, he was just announced uh, like a week or two ago. Um, and so the reason I started to think about this a little bit is because I talk to Jamie pretty much every day. And therefore, you know, I know that if I have an interesting idea around this, I have the ability to communicate directly to the person in charge. And so 
Here's my question. So, so in Chelsea, there's the Elliott houses and the Fulton houses. Are you kind of vaguely familiar with those two sets of NYCHA projects? Am I? Yes. Chelsea. Okay. So there's a plan to tear them down, build uh, new housing. So it, it would be... Well, they'd actually build the new housing like in the parking lots while the buildings are still standing. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. But, but ultimately, there's 2,000 units collectively among them now. Is would, that all there is? Just 2,000? Yeah. Wow. So it would be like 55... More. 100 units um, at a cost of $1.5 billion. And, and here's my question. So just doing a little bit of math, right? So 2,000 proportionate to $1.5 billion, 2,000 apartments is the expense of $540 million. If you divide $540 million by 2,000 apartments, it's $270,000 per apartment. If I'm a NYCHA resident and I'm living in a asbestos-laden, lead paint, mold-infested, rodent-infested place, and I was told, can't live here anymore, here's a check for $270,000. And you can only use it for a down payment on a home, a mortgage payment, or a rent payment, or maybe renovations or whatever it is. But this is so yours. It's not, it's, not, it's not money. It's a voucher then. But, but it's yours so that when this money goes to, say, a down payment for a home, the title's not in the government's name. It's in your name. You own it. It's yours to do whatever you please with it. Um, it just seems to me that that $78 billion or even 10% of that's very unlikely to ever show up from the federal government, right? So we, we can complain all we want and kind of like the migrant crisis, whatever else, we can just push the blame onto some other federal entity and, and try to avoid responsibility for it. But the reality is the vast majority of that money, at least from what I can tell so far, is never going to come, right? And so you can just continue the status quo where people are living in really, really often substandard conditions that just they shouldn't have to live in. It's wrong. Um, and rather than sort of hoping that the traditional government solution is going to work when we already know that it's not, um, you know, what if you took that same land sold it to private developers, gave them air rights, gave them as of right zoning so they could build whatever they want on there. And whether you got 540 million, or maybe you'd get more than that, you distribute a lot of it to the residents and say, hey, here's a really big check. And you can, you're not free, by the way, to use this wherever you want. You don't even have to necessarily use it. And you know, people might decide to move to Phoenix. Uh, well, probably it's pretty fucking hot there. Maybe you wouldn't want to move to Phoenix. But but people it, might people leave like town. But the the People should have the autonomy to make decisions for themselves about having the best life that they can. And so at the very least, I, I, you know, I, I would like to just poll NYCHA residents and just say, like, okay, if this were an option, Well, I don't think there's any doubt it? that it would appeal to some people. I guess the issue is, I mean, they've been trying housing vouchers on the federal level for, you know, 50 years, longer. Probably. Yeah, but it's a voucher that, like, basically is one shitty option to another. I'm, I'm talking about... A, a check big enough. Well, it wasn't to, meant to be, right? So Section 8 vouchers were meant to be used in the private sector. It turned, didn't really work out that way. They couldn't right. figure out how to do it, so they linked them to specific projects. Yes, yeah, so you ended up with all these sort of Section but 8 housing. I guess the question is, is you know, or, or one challenge to this idea is, you know, you have a lot of uh, older sort of health-challenged people in, in NYCHA housing, people who are not going to be easily able to move, people mm -hmm. who are scared probably at the idea of being taken out of their homes. So how do you deal with that? Uh, okay, but but you also have in NYCHA housing frequently multiple generations of a family living together. Right. Right. So yeah, the 75-year-old with, you know, diabetes and asthma and everything else may be 
isn't in a position to say, okay, we're going to deal with packing, moving, getting a new place, getting set up. But their 30-year-old grandchild very well might be capable of doing that. And so it seems to me that, yes, there's probably a world of people where it's just elderly sick people without anyone else to take care of them. And you would have to find a solution to that, um, which it may just mean, look, if we sold that land for $800 million, and we gave everyone the check for 270 and there was a remaining 260 left, we will use that to fix up another building where people can go. So look, the one sort of flaw in the argument is it doesn't guarantee that people can stay in the communities that they're currently in. I know that some people, especially in the far left, are very adamant about that. So I get that, but I also don't believe that you have an inherent right to be in any particular community um, if you're not paying for it. Um, should we go to the recommendations? Sure. I've, so you, I'm going to do something you don't like, which I'm giving more than one. You're gonna, well, you can't give like 10. I'm going to give like three or four. Three or four? Yeah. All right. So, so your podcast. The, the, it is. Um, I was it, yeah, basically, I, I was expecting you to um, you push back. Push back. And I was just, debating this morning that how dickish it would sound if I just said overruled. Too. Yeah. No, I don't think um, it's dickish at all. I think it's your podcast. You so get to do what you want. A couple of things. Well, I saw two movies this weekend. Um, Joyride and Mission Impossible. Okay, just which if I was going to see one, which one? Joyride. Okay, I give them both a B plus. Oh, they both get a B plus. Yes, Mission solid. We get a B plus. Solid, but God, not great. The, you know, the, the trailer other, gave me a headache. The <laughs> other problem with Mission Impossible was to a few things. So Lyle and I saw it, and I thought, oh, this is like the perfect big screen experience. So I got his tickets for a movie theater in Times Square, thinking like that'll be awesome, right? right? The theater was disgusting. The screen was no bigger than anywhere else. We had to go to Times Square, which was terrible. And then it was fucking freezing in there. It was one of those, it was Saturday. So it was like 97 degrees outside. So you're not going to walk around with a sweater, but then you get into the theater and it's fucking cold. Yeah. Um, and they didn't have milk duds. It was like no a milk disaster. Duds. Wait, do you guys get milk duds? I do. Okay. I do. Do you ever, do you, do you Lyle ever... got dipping duds. Oh, okay. Do you ever pour the milk duds in into the popcorn? A popcorn? Yeah, 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 that's a, a common technique. Oh, you, you do that? You, you did not invent that. No, no, I know I didn't invent that, but I was just like... Yeah, I, if I we get popcorn. Although, given that they're both bad for you, and right. I, I instead of doubling down on the bad, I'll pick one, and if I have to pick one, I'll pick the... The milk duds? The milk duds. Okay. So, um, okay, so don't... It's go, so go see Joyride over Mission Impossible, Impossible whatever you do. Don't see either of them in Times Square. Square. Gotcha. The, the Regal okay. Ewok in Times Square is a terrible Noted. theater. Um our friend Steven Soderbergh has a new TV show out on Max called Full Circle about like a kidnapping and Santeria and all kinds of weird shit taking place right in your neighborhood. Uh, like it mostly takes place at 1-5th Avenue in Washington Square Park nice. and then also Richmond Hill, Queens. Um, pretty good. And uh, read a book over the weekend called The One by Julia Argy or A-R-G-Y, maybe R-G, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. But it's a send up of The Bachelor or Bachelorette but just done in a really clever, subtle way with a kind of a slow reveal that it, it does a really good job of capturing it without being so over the top that it was just sort of like obvious. So I, I thought she did a really good job. I approve of these recommendations. Those are my recommendations. Uh, Bradley, so we're going we're gonna to be off uh, next week. Well, we're going to have an episode, but it's yeah. gonna be, we're about to record it, and it's on a singular topic. What, what are we going to be talking about? Just Meditation. Like, yeah, Lyle and I Pre-dive. are going to Chicago for four or five days to go see the, the White Sox and the Cubs, um, and so I won't be able to record sort of a timely in the news podcast. So instead, we're going to do something that's a little more timeless, and what's more timeless than meditation? Uh, Have a great trip, Brad. Thanks. Bye-bye.